You better listen, my brother, 'cause if you do, you can hear there are voices still calling from across the years. Dear friends, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network series highlighting the work of our members. The growing network of over 80 shows in five countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content, and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp, and I produce Empathy Media Labs podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. I'm speaking with Sarah Jaffe. Who is a journalist, author, and co-host of Belabored, which is Dissent Magazine's audio podcast that brings regular news and analysis from the world of work. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, "Work Won't Love You Back: How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone." But before going into that, Sarah, could you introduce yourself, where you grew up, and what got you interested in labor issues? I I'm Sarah Jaffe. I'm kind of a vagrant, so right now I'm in New York, but、um, I have lived in a lot of places, most of them on the East Coast of the U.S., though sometimes also not. And、uh, I grew up outside of Boston, and which is a lovely union town.、Um, and I, I credit、uh, when people ask me how I got into being a labor reporter, my answer is usually punk rock and shitty jobs. And、uh, you know, I, I credit you know the Boston punk scene having a bunch of bands that sang about their unions as, as a thing. You know, my parents were small business people, so I didn't really.、Um, I did have an uncle who's a teamster, so that was a thing. But、um, I didn't really actually know that growing up because he was not. Yeah, we didn't talk about it that much. So you know, I, I learned about unions and union culture as a thing from the music scene and sort of the. The air in Boston, and then by the time I got old enough to have jobs, I had some really lousy jobs.、Um, a lot of them in the restaurant industry in the days before, like Rock United and other things, were were really trying to、um, restaurant opportunity center for people who aren't familiar.、Um, we're really trying to to organize within the restaurant industry in particular, and so I was just kind of like, how does any of this ever get better, other than me just like. Going to school and then that didn't work and I was still waiting tables and so I went to more school and eventually finally got out. So you're a writer background. You went to journalism school, I believe. And、mm -hmm. did you know coming out that you're like I want to focus on labor issues or were you did you have other notions of being a writer of、um, a fiction、oh、writer or something like that? Yeah, no, I wanted to be a novelist and my parents were like, that's not a real job. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, it's funny because I, I wrote this book about you know the labor of love and this sort of shift in culture about being told that you should do what you love and like I feel like in the like eighties and early nineties when I was like old enough to start being asked the question what do you want to be when you grow up, you know that that was like the peak moment for like that weird transition of like oh you can like do something you want to do and like aspire to be something when you grow up right, but like. Then, if the answer is the wrong one, I would still sort of get like steered away from that. I was like, "You can be whatever you want." Okay, I want to, you know, whatever. No, no, not that. No, not that. No, not that either. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, fine." Then what can I be?、Um, and you know, when I finished undergrad, I still had no idea what I wanted to be, and I was、um, waiting tables and I was writing the occasional thing for sort of local publications.、Um, I went to. Undergrad in in New Orleans, and then I moved to Denver, Colorado, on kind of a whim. And、um, I was still waiting tables. I, I sort of couldn't get a job job 
Um, and so by the time I decided to go to grad school, I, well, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I applied to um, one journalism program, which is the one I ended up going to. And other than that, I applied to like MFA programs. I applied to um, a master's in English, which would have been like the PhD track eventually. Um, and I got into journalism program at Temple University in Philly. And I got into a couple of MFA programs and it came down to sort of that advice my parents had given me, which is still being a novelist isn't the job, Sarah. Um, you know, if you go to this MFA program, you're going to get out and you're going to be teaching. And if you go to journalism school, maybe you can get out and actually be writing for a living, which is sort of what happened. Um, barring a few jobs where I was writing, but I wasn't sort of, um, I was working behind the scenes on a TV show for a little while. And yeah, so, you know, I still secretly wish I could be a novelist. Maybe I'll write one someday. <laughs> well, your book, I didn't read it, but I did hear you reading it all weekend long and I did finish it. Um, that's that's in, reading. In, that in fast speed. Yeah, right. and, and, and I really, really <laughs> loved it. And your writing flows, you're, you're a beautiful writer, but it, it also flows from history. You bring in a lot of labor history, you bring in philosophical concepts, you bring in public policy, uh, sociology, and you're always grounding it in personal stories in these 10 chapters of these 10 different individuals to kind of personify uh, each type of work. And uh, I, I also like how you kind of personalize it because you begin the entire book by discussing your situation as a freelance writer. And, you know, you, it, it's, it's interesting because work won't love you back, but you start off how you describe, you love your work, writing these words at 8 p.m. after 12 hours on the screen, and you have it good. Uh, could you talk about the precariousness of writing this book as a journalist and author in the 21st century? And uh, and we'll, we'll get more into the, the actual substance after, you know, all these personal questions. Yeah, no, it's funny, right? Because I, I mean, I started the book that way because I knew that immediately like people would be coming at me. Well, do you like your work? Do you like your work? And so I'm like literally like head that off of the past. Um, and it's true, right? Like I much prefer what I do now to when I was waiting tables, which I mostly hated. And I wasn't very good at it. Um, and like, it's, you know, it's very true that my own experiences as a waitress and then as a journalist are, are the reasons that I started thinking about the, I like on some level started thinking about the way, the things that service work and that kind of creative economy, you know, with big air quotes around it work actually have a lot in common. Um, and there are some useful things, right? Like I will tell anyone who wants to listen that like waiting tables made me a better journalist because it taught me how to poker face as people say all sorts of things to you um, and get really comfortable talking to strangers all day long um, and how to deflect things you don't want to talk about. All sorts of useful things from time working in the service industry and, and dealing with assholes, uh, dealing I, with I personally assholes, with a server. You know? and, uh, yeah. And like a lot of bad people out there that think they can treat. Yeah. You. And, and, you know, being sexualized, which is a thing that really didn't stop when I became a journalist. Like I still talk to a lot of men who really um, want to turn the conversation onto some other things. And, you know, it's all of these things that, that uh, being in the service industry taught me how to deal with. 
but like there's you know there's a reality to that that question of of like what does it take to put on that poker face no matter what you're doing whether you're doing your you know eight millionth interview on your book or you are um answering the same dumb dad joke every time you're waiting tables or frankly the thing that used to drive me the craziest when I was waiting tables is people who asked me what what I really did because like there's this assumption that if you're waiting tables and like you look young-ish and college age or something like that then maybe you're still in school and this isn't your real job and blah 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 and so they always wanted to know like what are you doing are you in school what is blah 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 and it's just like none of your damn business you don't actually get access to that part of me I'm just serving you your dinner yeah. You know, um, so those kinds of things are, are really, you know, they're always still with me. And then, like, frankly, like there's a lot of years where I make about as much as a journalist as I did when I was waiting tables. Uh, you know, if I got a restaurant job, you know, pre-pandemic life, which right now I, you know, solidarity to everybody who's either being forced into work in a restaurant right now or laid off because the restaurants are closed. But like if I was waiting tables at a fine dining restaurant in New York city, I'd probably make more than I make as a journalist, you know? And that is a reality that people don't really like to talk about, but it's becoming more apparent because of the union struggles in the industry that like, you know, you see things like when the vice union um, went public and they got the information for the first time on sort of salaries and like, you had people working at Vice who were making like $27,000 a year or something like that. And it's just like, you can't live on that in New York City, especially if you've got student debt to pay on top of your rent. And, you know, that there's this idea that like these jobs that come with some sort of cultural capital, therefore must be sort of secure. I have this memory. It's very funny because like, Several years ago, um, after Hurricane, God, which one was it? Maria, I think, um, hit South Florida. And you know what always happens? And I, again, I lived in New Orleans for a while and I remember Hurricane Katrina and I was very sensitive to this having lived there. Is it like the stories that come out in the press about like looters and all of that crap are really racialized. So I tweeted something about this and um Tucker Carlson ended up seizing on it. And so that meant that I got about three weeks worth of like really racist hate tweets and comments on Facebook and email and all of this stuff. And they were like leaving negative comments on my book on Amazon, my first book. And the thing that got to me about it really was not like there are racists out there. Um, it was not like getting, you know, anti-Semitic, whatever, like, you know, it sucks, but like, the thing that really was annoying was they would all sort of assume that I was rich. And like, because like Fox News has to sort of blow you up in order to justify attacking you. So it was like, you know, successful acclaimed author, Sarah Jaffe. And I was like, dude, I got a $15,000 advance for that first book. And it took me two years to report and write. Like that is not, I'm not rich. They were like, why don't you have all these, you know, undocumented immigrants in your big house? And I was like, I live in a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like this assumption that like, if you have published things with your name on it, therefore you're doing all right. Like I'm 40 years old. My second book is out there and I, you know, I'm, I still can't buy an apartment and I just paid off my student loans this summer. You know, I'm 40. <laughs> this is supposed to Get be the graduate degree you know, adulting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, that's the reality of it. 
And I was thinking this morning about like the weird ways that that freelancing encourages you to be a terrible person, basically, because it's all around building your own brand and promoting your own work. And that, you know, it can really work against the idea of having solidarity with anyone. And that's not by accident, right? Like the the pushing of even white collar jobs into this kind of, you know, precarity and selling it to us as flexibility and freedom. That's much, that's a part of a much bigger ideological project that spans from Uber drivers to port truck drivers to, you know, Hollywood actors, like anyone in between, where we're always sort of keeping ourselves in check because we're always worried about getting the next gig. Yes, yeah, so true. And while peacocking, uh, you know, trying to show more colors sometimes and yeah. No, exactly. You have to sort of constantly be both performing and also be like very careful about your performance. And it's it's freaking crazy making sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It creates cognitive dissonance. So in, in the first half of your book, uh, you you have part one and part two. And the first part is what we might call love. And you focus on uh, the nuclear family, domestic work, teaching, retail, and nonprofit. And you have this concept that you discuss about gendered labor and the feminization of, of labor. Uh, could you talk about this and, and what it is and this process that we've, we've undergone? Yeah. So, you know, there's this really persistent idea that the working class is a white guy who goes to work in a factory, has a wife at home, um, you know, sort of Henry Ford's ideal worker. And that was, was never the entirety of the working class, right? It never has been and it never will be, but it was a more dominant form of work. It took up a much bigger place in the economy than it does now, right? And, you know, we, we hear a lot, we think a lot about deindustrialization, about outsourcing, about all of these questions. And, you know, Trump sort of proved that the lack of answers to them coming from labor and the left and the Democratic Party meant that there was a big opening for somebody to exploit them with really um, reactionary and, and dangerous politics. But the other part of that story, right, is that like what fills in when those jobs go away? And in a lot of cases, it was women going into the workforce in bigger numbers than they ever had. And while, you know, you get the exciting Ruth Bader Ginsburg story of women get to be lawyers and, and Supreme Court justices, the reality is that most women went into low-wage work and they went into gendered low-wage work. They went into healthcare work. They went into, I mean, they had always been teaching in much bigger numbers than men, um, but they went into retail work and also, the other part of that story is that men are also in those fields now. So men are doing jobs where they are expected to be caring and provide a service and have to do the emotional labor of that poker face when you're waiting tables. Um, and so it's the feminization of work is sort of this process by which like a more women are in the workplace and the jobs are you know, in, in jobs that are expected to be for women. And then that men are in the jobs that are expected to be for women. And so those conditions that were okay, that like a lot of 
men and, and a lot of unions, frankly, sort of accepted as okay when they were just for the girls because the girls didn't really need a full-time job. Um, it turns out that leaving that as a big gap created a huge hole that was exploited by capital basically, right? So now, you know, more and more people as Ajahn Poo from the, you know, National Domestic Workers Alliance said are in working conditions that look a lot more like domestic workers. And you have this tension throughout about love. And I, I've been talking about this book with other people and most people are like, well, love, you know, you should love your work and everything else. And, and you're, the whole concept is you get exploited from that idea of loving your work. And by loving your work, people can take advantage of that. And the whole nuclear family, when it was first started, it wasn't built on love. It was built on necessity or on different forms of um, social engineering in a way. And, it, and women were forced into this role, you know, mostly unpaid uh, or always unpaid. Um, and it, it kind of, it sets the whole framework as, as you proceed through, through the book. And one of the first uh, chapters, you're looking at a single mom and she's in the United Kingdom and it's with this UKIP reactionary, mm -hmm. uh, racist uh, predecessor of everything we saw, you know, um, in 2016 and Trump's obviously way Farage. before then. Say, yeah. Sorry, say that again. The Trump's buddy, Nigel Farage. Yeah, exactly. But even before that, in the introduction, you talk, you, you mentioned uh, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who came to power in 1979 as stating economics are the method. The object is to change the soul. And so... For those who don't know history, could you discuss what Thatcher meant? <laughs> Margaret that the thing about Margaret Thatcher that's so great is that she just really said all of that shit out loud. You know, there's a Thatcher quote for pretty much everything. And it's there. And like, you know, my sourcing for that is like literally the Margaret Thatcher Foundation website or whatever it is, right? It's like, yeah, that this is just out there. It's what she said. Um, so the project of neoliberalism and the reason that I sort of take the time with it that I do in the introduction is a project of changing the way we live. And in doing that, it changed the way we think about how we live. So the idea that we should love our jobs was not actually that common, not that long ago, you know, and the idea that like you would ask somebody who was going to work in a Ford factory back, you know, when Ford was, well, we'll get into what Ford did, but like that they would be like, oh yes, I went to work at the Ford factory because I really loved working on an assembly line. That was just like, you wouldn't, why would you ask that question? No, you went to work at Ford because like it was the best job that you could get. And because after a while the union had actually won enough gains to make it a pretty damn good job. Um, but it was still hard, backbreaking, grinding work that, you know, you talk to anybody who's working in a factory right now and, uh, you know, the work itself is not a lot of fun. And so the reason that I, I love talking about stuff like this is to point out that these things are like the things that we assume are natural are mostly not, whether that be the nuclear family with, you know, man and woman and 2.5 kids in a suburban home or, you know, loving your job. And, you know, the, the sort of working class nuclear family, Henry Ford, in addition to offering the $5, you know, $5 day for his workers, 
to get the $5 day, you had to let his inspectors into your house to make sure you were having proper heterosexual relations with your proper heterosexual wife in order to get access to the living wage. So, you know, there's a very explicit social engineering and sort of all of these um, parts of capital or capitalism. And so when Margaret Thatcher talks about using economics to change the soul, you know, what she means is we're going to sell off all the public housing so that people can individually buy their home. So then they become individually invested in asset prices rising. And I have not yet read, but need to read the new book by Melinda Cooper and some other folks called The Asset Economy, which is basically about this, this divide created. And you can see it in voting patterns now. You know, when I joke about being 40 years old and not being able to like buy a house, this is like the real divide. When you look at in the UK, the split between people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn and voted for Boris Johnson in the last election there, um, between people who vote Trump and vote, you know, or voted for Biden this time around, but also the split within the Democratic Party between people who voted for Biden and then people who voted for Bernie Sanders. Like the nuclear family, to sort of wrap all of this up with a neat little bow around it, was created as a path for sort of private wealth management and transfer, not because this is how human beings naturally prefer to live. And that private wealth transfer was, you know, doubled down and tripled down upon under Thatcher and Reagan and continues to be so today because it is a way to sort of disguise from the fact that like wages aren't going up. But you have an asset, an asset price inflation. Well, that's like, okay, if you're, you know, a middle-class family who happened, you know, if you're that Ford worker who managed to buy a house, then okay, the asset price inflation will help you a little bit, unless you lost your house in the 2008 collapse. But who it's really helping is Jeff Bezos. So I live outside of uh, Washington, D.C., which is kind of the international center of nonprofits of the world, uh, at least one of many. And uh, chapter five, you focus on suffer for the cause nonprofits. And a lot of people who support Planned Parenthood and support the mission of Planned Parenthood may not be aware of even in this what is a very forward leaning, progressive, um, trying to promote women's health, women's rights is, uh, can also be very reactionary in its management of the employees in Planned Parenthood. Do you mind uh, just uh, mentioning kind of like a little bit of the, the outline of that chapter? Yeah, so I really, I knew I had to write about nonprofit work, right? And it was actually kind of tempting when I thought about it to also like write about the working conditions working at a union. So that was almost what that chapter was because I, I frankly, like this is a bigger subject, but like organized labor and the the reproductive choice as separate from like reproductive justice framework movements suffer from a lot of the same problems, which is like an overinvestment in the democratic party and a sort of hierarchical structure that actually isn't listening to the rank and file. And, you know, these are, are things that have been challenges for both movements. And so the Planned Parenthood story was really striking to me. Um, I tell the story of one particular worker and the union drive at Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains and, and the organization is set up so the affiliates like Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains are independent, almost like franchises of the national organization. And so the woman that I profile is a health center worker. Um, 
who it gets involved in unionizing the Planned Parenthood branch. And it got really messy and unpleasant and as it often does in even in nonprofit organization. Um, and it was really, you know, it's striking to me that still a lot of people don't wanna talk about this particular section. And like, look, like I think, and, and Ashley, the woman that I profile in that chapter thinks that like, this is actually important to make the movement stronger is actually to give both like, just give decent working conditions and pay scales to people who are doing you know, incredibly difficult, emotionally draining work where a lot of the time they have to walk through a, basically a picket line of shrieking antis every day they go to work um, for 12 bucks an hour. Like, and, and the reason that they do it is because they do believe in the organization's mission. But like, you are not actually going to have a strong movement if your movement is basically set up to bring in young people who really believe in the mission and then burn them out in three years and start with a new crop. Like what that does is drive people out of the movement and then the movement remains weak. And among other things, you don't have sort of generational transfer of knowledge and things that work and things that don't work and all of that stuff. And so like to her and to me, it's really important to understand like what they were doing in unionizing their Planned Parenthood um, branch is trying to make it better. And that that's not incoherent. In fact, that's often what people do when they form unions at organizations at jobs that they love, right? Teachers unions are, despite all of the wanking on the op-ed pages right now about how we need to reopen schools and everybody should just go die, um, teachers unions are trying to make the schools better. Like this you know, this is, it's a complicated thing because again, when you were working at Ford, the adversarial nature of this sort of union and management, even after the, the big famous treaty of Detroit is a little bit more obvious. And in these other places, part of the reason that the labor of love narrative gets so pernicious is that you are told that if you make any demands for yourself, you are shortchanging the movement. And I just, think it's a crappy movement if it relies on exploited labor. And oftentimes the people on the very top of these nonprofits can be making a quarter of a million dollars a year. And the, yeah, the others, you know, and like it's, it become, you know, is, you mentioned being outside of DC and it being the head of the sort of center of nonprofit, whatever. And like, there's a reason for that, right? Is because like those people are schmoozing with senators and this is, you know, something that I mentioned before is sort of this reliance on sort of access to the Democratic Party um, is a, I mean, I will just say it, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how power works. But like, but the way that nonprofits are set up, and I draw on the work of a lot of scholars and researchers who are within nonprofits, um, including Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who sort of writes about the way that nonprofits become sort of the shadow state, right? That they fill in the things that the state is not doing, which again has only accelerated under in the world that Margaret Thatcher brought us. That, you know, private organizations will step up and do the things that the state no longer does. And so, you know, and as, as 
things completely fall apart this year when we have the point where like even the CEO of GoFundMe is like, y'all need to step in because GoFundMe can't pick up all the pieces here. You know, we see the limitations of that reliance on sort of third sector organizations to, to put band-aids on those gaping wounds of capitalism. Yeah, and it's always dependent upon foundation donations and private donations and, uh-huh. I've worked and in international who development. Who are the donors, right? Yeah, and, like, don- and then that dries up sometimes in these, you know, crisis and working well, in and, international. And, and the donors have ideas about how their money should be spent and they want deliverables and they want this and that, which is just like the opposite of how movement organizing works. And they, you know, they, they sort of change their mind every two years, you know, Black Lives Matter, the sort of first go round of Black Lives Matter, like 2014 and 2015, you know, Kianga Yamada Taylor wrote this wonderful article about this, about how like the money flows into places like Ferguson all of a sudden, because, you know, the big foundations are like, oh crap, we've been ignoring black people. And so then you get organizations that have never had money that are suddenly able to like hire young people from the movement to be organizers. But in two years, the, you know, foundation, you know, has the attention span of, of a, you know, ferret on speed and it goes in another direction and suddenly the money is gone. You're laying off all of these people and you go like, oh, well, crap, like, how do we keep going? And then there's another wave of the movement and then the same thing happens again. It's like, oh, crap, we should still have been paying attention to this. Um, and it's just, it's infuriating, right? It's just like, come on, man. <laughs> like, and, and you mentioned the need how- hasn't gone away. And the, and the customer is like the donor and not the actual mm. people who are receiving the services. And then meanwhile, exactly. the people who are working, they're hand tied so they can't get political, which is, these are oftentimes you need a political solution with the organizing and the nonprofits. You take all these good people who are activists off the table who are just trying to get a good job as well as you know doing what they love. Yeah, and this sort of service provision question of it is really important. Like right now, I was having a conversation with some folks last night about mutual aid and sort of political organizations doing mutual aid. And the the tension becomes, and I was talking about um, my reporting in New York after Hurricane Sandy in 2012 and, and um, the nurses union, right? Nizna was doing incredible work. And this was sort of just after a change in leadership at the union. Um, and they did a ton of on the ground sort of mutual aid work in places like Far Rockaway where they're sort of going door to door in housing projects where the elevators were out because there was no power and giving people more health care than they'd ever had in their lives in some cases. And also they're still working full time as nurses. And then also they're trying to be part of political organizing to pressure the mayor, thank you, Michael Bloomberg, to actually do what the you know, the city in this case, but the, the, the state as concept, not like the state of New York is supposed to do. And it becomes just nearly impossible to do all of those things at once, right? And so, you know, you get nurses who are suddenly exhausted because, you know, on top of doing an already exhausting just day job, then they're doing all of this other work. And it was just like, right, what do you do in those situations when like the whole, the need is so vast? And you have a recent essay in The Nation about how these nurses are the ones who are also saving the healthcare system, yeah. uh, the people. And it, it's just insane where teachers are being blamed and they're obviously the ones who care about it more than anyone else. 
or and and to say that to scapegoat the teachers right now is is just another cognitive dissonance it's, it's, going it's on. It's so much. It's so much, and I'm so like so. You know, last week we lost Karen Lewis, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union, who like, and I just kept thinking after hearing that she had passed, like how much worse the discourse around teachers and reopening schools would be right now, if not for like CTU circa 2012, suddenly sort of bursting onto the scene with this entirely different narrative about caring for the kids, about fixing the schools, about what they actually need to have safe and productive spaces for learning. And yeah, just the, the, the way that these unions and in particular in teachers unions and nurses unions, because these are two places that we've really seen some leadership coming within the labor movement in the last you know couple of decades is the sort of newly militant unions among teachers and nurses who are, these are the places where, again, where sort of the, the holes and the need become so visible. It's the school and the hospital, right? Where do people go? Where do people get some access to care, some access to support, like the way that schools are expected to just fill in for an entire social safety net right now, that if we somehow just like reopen schools, all of the problems of the pandemic will suddenly be like fine. And it's just, it's bonkers to think about, but it's also just, I am just like that much more, you know, horrified to think about what it might be like if we didn't have the leadership that we've had from these unions in the last several years. So I know we're running short on time, uh, but I do have a few more questions. Okay. On the part two, you focus on enjoy what you do and you go through art, internships, academia, technology, gaming, and sports. And I love the chapter on my studio is the world art. Mm. And you talk about these these grand artists making tremendous amounts of money, yet they have a huge army of assistants mm -hmm. who are helping them to produce it, sometimes actually doing the art yeah, that they're getting credit for, but not crediting the artists for any any of their creative uh, input. Um, could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's so stunning, right? Like it, it, it I am not like an art person. My brother-in-law is a union curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, I, you know, I like to go to art museums. I know what I like, but I'm not particularly like an art world person. So that chapter for me was sort of the most fun and interesting to write because I just learned so much that I didn't already know. Um, and I talked to so many people who have worked in the industry. So I, I um, talked to OK Fox and Lucia Love from the Wonderful Art and Labor podcast about this and like, you know, Lucia was like, yeah, I worked in Jeff Koons' studio. Like, you know, like, yeah, we, we made these things. He, Jeff Koons literally calls it the factory, you know? And when the workers at the factory tried to unionize, a bunch of them got laid off. Where do we hear that before? Um, and, you know, yeah, and it's, it's fascinating if you start sort of reading these profiles of these artists, like there's this really good profile of Kara Walker who did the, the Sugar Sphinx statue that was, you know, 300 feet from where I'm sitting right now for a little while before they tore down the domino factory. And that thing, of course she didn't make that with her hands. You know, she made a, she made drawings and then somebody turned those into a massive 3D sculpture. And we know that on, on some level, you know, when you go see that, that Kara Walker wasn't just there like with her hands packing sugar into a giant sphinx, right? Like that had to be made with like industrial materials, but, on the wall, it doesn't have a list of 
the production, you know, it just says Carol Walker. And there's a bit in this article where, you know, her assistants just sort of materialize and then disappear. You know, they're, they're talking about like being in her studio with her and it's just like her assistants. And it just like is like taken as a given that we all know what that means. But like in many cases, you know, those assistants are doing the majority of the work. And um, I love the line that I, I quote from Molly Crabapple, who's an artist and a writer and a friend of mine. And she's just like, why can't we just have like credits for the artwork the way that like a movie has credits, right? Where like, you know, you watch um, a Martin Scorsese movie and like, yeah, it's a Martin Scorsese movie. He's the director, right? Kara Walker was like the director of that sculpture. But then you sit there and you can see the credits of everybody who worked on the thing. And like, you know, I like to try to sit there and watch the movie credits, even though like I'm not actually absorbing all of the names, just to remember that like, this was a massive undertaking that employed hundreds of people who all were part of that thing. But with, you know, works of sort of fine art that's obscured and it shouldn't be. So you conclude the book writing on Valentine's Day morning, 2020, a year ago oh, yesterday. Yeah before it impacted so many of our lives. And I just really appreciated the ending um, with such an optimistic note. And it's almost this beautiful prose poetry where you write, solidarity is a process of love. And because if there was one thing worth doing with our brief flickering lives on this dying planet it is loving other people, attempting to understand them across a space of difference that will always contain mystery, no matter how well you think you know someone. What I believe and want you to believe too is that love is too big and beautiful and grand and messy and human a thing to be wasted on a temporary fact of life like work. Everyone should read this book and thank you for all you're doing to raise class consciousness. Oh, thank you so much. You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear There are voices still calling from across the years And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land And they will until we all come to understand None of us are free, none of us are free right we got to feel for each other let our brothers know we're here got to get the message send it out all loud and clear none of us are free Isn't very hard to find None of us can find it on our 
We got to join together, spirit, heart, and mind. So all the souls are suffering, know that.